Most of you have met my wife, Shelly. She's one of the calmest people you could ever meet. She is able to weather seemingly anything that comes her way and rarely seems to be rattled by much of anything. Sure, at times the kids can be a bit, but really the only time you see her animated is when she's cheering on the kids. In fact, if you were to come when Acacia or Kaylee are playing rugby or when Kazee is in a competition on the trampoline, you would see her morph into a different person. I remember back one time when Kaylee was in high school, she had uh, signed on and was playing for a competitive football team. All year she attended practices at York University with the university students and she made sure she was at every game. She was fairly competitive, but that hadn't translated into much playing time. Later, we would learn, the coach would tell us that it was because she was the only girl on the team, and he didn't want to play a girl. He couldn't live with himself if a girl got hurt. Well, when the last game of the season came, Kaylee's number was finally called. She went onto the field, and the game was already all but over, but the score was out of reach, and yet every woman in the stand, every mother who was there seemed to have noticed this. And they started to cheer. They were on their feet. One lady was running up and down the sidelines. She was so excited. And when this 200-pound-plus-pound running back came through the the line met by my 18-year-old daughter, and she managed to get him on the ground, the cheering only grew louder. Later, Kaylee would tell us that above the cheering, she could hear her mom. The crowds, they were cheering to encourage her. Most had watched. They knew what was going on. Some were upset about it. They had spoken to me about it. They were trying to support her, inspire her to stay the course. They saw the injustice. They just wanted her to succeed. Well, today we come to a letter in which the Apostle Paul was writing to do just that. He, he too cared about a group that was struggling. He, he knew the challenges and troubles that they faced, and yet he didn't want them to give up. He didn't want them to throw the towel in, as it were. And so while he himself was facing his own trial, while he was in prison, actually chained to a Roman guard at the time, he wrote to encourage them. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to that letter. It's the book of Ephesians. So if you turn over there to the book of Ephesians with me. As you turn, let me give you some context. The, the book of Ephesians, it isn't a long book, just six chapters. In fact, it'd only take you about 20 minutes if you were to read it aloud. And yet, despite that, pound for pound, it's hard to find a document that has been more influential in history than it. Now, no doubt that's just partly because the letter could have been written to any group of Christian in any time. After all, most of the Apostle Paul's letters were written to churches that were facing hardships or heresies or false teachers or or churches that were in danger of wandering astray. Other than hardships, there's little of the rest of that in Ephesians. Paul, he doesn't mention any false teaching in the book. He doesn't mention any specific problems in the church itself. Instead, he simply wanted to encourage them and build them up in their faith. And since every believer in every time at some point could use some encouragement, it is a book that God has used to inspire believers and help them grow deeper in their walk with Him. Now, well, the, the book, it holds the, the name Ephesians. Paul, he intended this letter to be shared around the churches of Asia Minor. In fact, some have even questioned whether the greeting to those in Ephesus was added later. Truthfully, it doesn't really matter, though, because whatever would have been directed towards Ephesus would have applied to all the other towns in the area, because Ephesus was your prototypical Roman town of the the time. Ephesus, it was this busy port city, the fourth or fifth largest in the world of that time. It served as the gateway to Asia. It had a massive amphitheater that held about 25,000 people. It was a place that the Apostle Paul knew well. In fact, he'd spent longer there than anywhere else on his missionary journeys. Spent about three years in the town. 
Paul had used it as a base to spread the gospel in Asia. And it had worked. The gospel had taken off. A church had been started and planted, and it was growing. Now, it wasn't without challenges. Paul tells us that the, the doors of the synagogues had been closed to him. Acts 20 tells us that Paul served in Asia with tears and trials. And over in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes as far as saying that he faced wild beasts in Ephesus. And while that, that might just be a figure of speech, it likely refers to something that happened to Paul in the amphitheater. You see, it's just that the message of the gospel, it, it caused more than ripples in the town, simply because it taught things that went against the cultural norms of the time. The culture of Asia, after all, was steeped in materialism. It was steeped in sensuality and perverted idolatrous practices. So in a town that even today you can find a, a stone that remains from that time period with a sign on it to direct the sailors from the docks to the brothels, the gospel preached a biblical view of sexuality and stood out. And a culture that worshipped the imperial cult where Caesar Augustus, the emperor, was spoken of as the savior of the world. His birth was heralded as the beginning of good news to the world, and even the calendar was changed in light of his birth. The gospel, it, it presented an entirely different good news and a different savior, and so it just didn't fit. Well, coins and statues and temples and other items proclaimed the, the good news, the gospel of Augustus. The church was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, Ephesus was also the center of the worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis, whose temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. And, and because of that, it was a center of tourism and commerce, something that was threatened by the gospel. Suffice to say, Ephesus, it just wasn't the easiest place to live as a believer, let alone share the gospel. And, and so Paul wrote to encourage them to keep it up, to stay the course, like someone cheering from the sidelines, urging them to keep pressing on, and give it their all. Truthfully, their world, it wasn't so much different than ours. After all, from other churches, from those in our societies, truthfully, I've never seen so much criticism and so much name-calling than I have over the last year. Even in our town, just a few months ago, as word of a petition for Bill C-6 sponsored by me to protect our ability to help those asking for help became known, someone was bold enough to go online and fill out one of our communication cards requesting the church fire me because, I quote, I'm sure God would never accept someone like Chad Houghton into his heaven. And it was much nicer. That was much nicer than some of the other things that were said. You see, it's just that what we believe, a gospel that demands all come to Jesus or end up in hell, a God that defines sin and doesn't let us define it, that limits our choice and determines right and wrong is seen by most in our world as nothing but backward, outdated, legalistic, and ignorant and not to be tolerated. And because of that, if I'm honest, I think things will only get worse. Some, they find it easier to become undercover Christians, and I'm sure that those in, there were some of those in Ephesus that to avoid the ridicule and shame just tried to bury their faith. But the Apostle Paul, he knew that if they were to be faithful, if we were to be faithful to what God has called us to do, that we would have to boldly proclaim the gospel, even if there was resistance to it, and we suffered for it. And since he knew that wouldn't always be easy, as he starts off his book, he takes time to encourage them to stay the course. Now, Paul, he was writing to ordinary people like you and I. Some were wealthy, some were simply employees, some worked in the port, some worked in the small villages around Ephesus or in Asia Minor. Christians that were just trying to live the Christian life and yet were facing difficulties and discouragement as they did so. In other words, if you ever have a time when you feel discouraged or beat up, 
the message of Ephesians was given by God to you to help you. If you would follow along as I read, we'll read the first 14 verses. Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestines us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have the redemption We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." You know, there's expressions in English that we use today that we don't really understand. Now, we know how to use them, but if push comes to shove, we might not know so much where they came from. I mean, take the expression, close but no cigar. I don't know if you've heard that. My parents used to use that. Close but no cigar. We know that it means that someone almost succeeded, that they almost won, but they didn't. Most have no idea that it originated from the carnival games that gave out cigars as prizes. So at a carnival booth, the player threw the ball at the bowling pins, and if they didn't knock them all down, they could say, close, but no cigar. Or or how about the expression, pardon my French, which, by the way, as your pastor, I need to tell you, you should never have to say that phrase. That phrase is used these days to apologize for foul language. But the phrase, it started when English speakers during the 1800s would pepper their language or speech with French and realize that some people didn't understand what they are saying, and so they would apologize for it. Or take the phrase, kick the bucket, an expression we use of death. Now today that phrase is out, so don't be surprised if you say that to a teen or today, and that teen asks why they kicked the bucket or what was in the bucket. But as an expression, it dates back to the 1600s. And it refers to those who would commit suicide by standing on a bucket with a noose and then kicking the bucket away. Each of those expressions, we understand enough about to use them, but we don't fully understand them, and there are hundreds more. They quit cold turkey. Cold turkey. She's having a cow, or break a leg, or you're opening a can of worms, or what am I, chopped liver? We know how to use them, but most don't fully grasp them. Well, in the section we come to today, we come across an expression, a phrase like that. You see, well, the section we read in, in Greek is just one complex run-on sentence, 200 plus words long, where the ideas just cascade over each other. Each idea is connected by one thought in Paul's mind, the concept of being in Christ. So much so that he refers to it at least a dozen times in these 14 verses. Now, let's be honest, if you've been in church for any length of time, that's probably a phrase you've heard before. And despite that, you, you may never have given any thought to it. 
It's just that we speak of being in him or in Christ all the time. We, we know it has something to do with salvation, something to do with being a Christian. And no doubt those ideas are contained in the meaning of the phrase, but there is so much more to it. In fact, so much so that Paul rarely used those other phrases. And truthfully, it's an odd phrase when you think about it. I mean, in Christ, you wonder how an early Christians thought that they were in a person who had been alive with them only a few years before, whose brothers they knew. I mean, no one spoke of being in James or in Peter or in Paul. In fact, you've got to think as Paul started to use this phrase that each time they heard it, that it was so strange to them that they thought about the meaning that it stood out for them. Today, even, we're more likely to speak of Christ in us than us in Christ. That's simply because we are much more accustomed to seeing ourselves as the primary actor in the play of life than God, so it's about us or in our mind, but also just because we have a better understanding of what it means for Christ to be in me than me to be in him. But that wasn't Paul's emphasis. No, instead, he focused, us on, focused on us being in him. You see, it's just that Paul, he knew that more important, more, that was more important, more central to their faith than anything else, that being united to and in communion and fellowship with Jesus was central. Simply put, for Paul, there was no more central a term, a phrase, for faith than it. And for all Paul, he was convinced that salvation was more than just believing certain things. James, he would write in agreement of that in his book, saying that even the demons believe. So belief was, to be a believer is more than about belief in certain things. It was to be in a relationship, in fellowship, in union with Christ. And that, well, that couldn't just be reduced to belief in a certain doctrine or teaching about Christ. And instead, it only happened when we were joined to him. Later in Ephesians, Paul, he's going to go so far as compare that to marriage, where we are joined together. See, just as when we're joined together in marriage and what is theirs becomes yours, so it is when we're joined to Christ to the point that what is Jesus says, his righteousness becomes ours as he takes on our unrighteousness and imputes his righteousness on us. His inheritance, it becomes ours. In fact, every spiritual blessing we have comes because we're in Christ. Martin Lord Jones put it this way, if you leave out the in Christ, you will never have any blessings at all. Every blessing we enjoy as Christian people comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that fact is played out in the section we read as everything Paul says comes from us being in Christ. God's purpose and elections take place in Christ. God's grace and redemption are found in Christ. People hear the word in Christ. They are sealed in Christ and everything is summed up in Christ. Dear friends, make no mistake, a, a true believer, someone who is truly saved is one who is found in Christ. Sadly today, there, there are many people that think that just because they said a specific prayer or they walked an aisle or they signed a commitment card, that that is enough. Others think that because they attend church, that they're good. But just because you're in church doesn't mean that you are in Christ. And just because you spoke some words or recited some words doesn't make you in Christ either. See, all that may be an important part of your story, but it's only those who have entered into a relationship with Jesus that have surrendered to him, that are found in him, that are saved. After all, for those that aren't in Christ, there just is no real life transformation because there's no relationship. Their, their lives aren't determined or defined by the relationship with him because they don't have one. And because there's no relationship, they don't share his righteousness. Because of that, they won't make it to heaven. In other words, well, everything Paul writes here is meant to encourage us Every encouragement he gives are only for those that are found in Christ. Truthfully, just being among those that are in Christ should encourage us. I mean, just for a minute, look at the end of this chapter. 
There, Paul, in verses 20 through 23, says that Jesus was raised from the dead and seated at his right hand, at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. One author summarized it this way. Paul says that we're united to the one who's above every earthly power and authority in this age and the age to come. He is Lord. Yet we share his honor and blessing by being united to him. Paul spells out the blessing. Christ is risen from the grave with power over sin and death. He's seated in the heavens with the Father. His power and privilege exceeds anything on earth, and we share his glory. He's head of all things, and all that is precious in the church and the world is filled with him. All of these blessings we share by the marvelous grace of being united to Christ. We struggle to apprehend all the goodness and glory of our union with Christ. The beauty of a sunset, the power of a storm, the purity of a child's prayer, the majesty of a hero's glory, the wonder of love's passion, and the hope of eternal glory. When all these earthly blessings fail, all of these are of him. All are under him. All are by him. All reflect the wonder and purity and power and beauty of who he is. And because we are in union with him, they are ours too. Well, that fact alone should be an encouragement to us this morning. And yet that isn't even the point of this passage. It's just the basis for it. Instead, Paul, he gives us three reasons why, if you're in Christ this morning, you should be encouraged. Three reasons that should cause you to respond with worship. Notice first, those in Christ should be encouraged by what God the Father has done in the past. Paul says that you and I, we should worship God the Father for what he has done in the past. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul, he starts out by reminding us that God chose us. Now today we get hung up on that, don't we? After all, it leaves us with questions. I mean, if God chose me, then what does that make of my decision to choose him? What does that say of my choice? What's more, we want to know on what grounds did God use to choose me? Why me and not someone else? But here's the thing. The, the idea of God choosing shouldn't be that confusing to us. After all, the Bible itself is full. It's a book of God's choosing. It tells us that God chose to create the world for his glory, that he chose Abraham to bring a nation through, and that he chose Israel to be the light to the nations. Jesus would choose 12 disciples, even though we know that he had at least 72 that were following him at one point. The Bible is full of God choosing. Jesus himself even tells us that all those who come to him are chosen. Over in John 6, we read, No one can come to me, Jesus saying that, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws me. God sent me draws him. And a few chapters later, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go bear and bear fruit. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's not that if you're a believer today that you didn't choose him. We even see that in the passage we're in. And in verse 13, the same, the same sentence in Greek talks about you believing. No, you believed. It's that you wouldn't have chosen to believe if he didn't first choose you. In fact, Paul goes as far as saying that God chose you before he created the world, before you could do anything to deserve it. Over in 2 Timothy, Paul puts it this way. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
That means that if you are in Christ today, God chose you before you did anything to warrant it. That doesn't answer our question, does it? It doesn't get to the hows and whys of it. It doesn't give us the reasons we're looking for. Someone wanted to ask Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and he responded, I never reconcile two friends. Someone asked another pastor about the problem. His response was, that's not my problem, that's God's problem, and for God it's not a problem. And I think I could do better in answering that than them. But to do so would only take away from what Paul's trying to do here. You see, Paul, he's not focused on the whys here. He isn't seeking to defend or explain the, the doctrine of election here. He simply wanted to remind them and us of the fact of it. He wants those in Asia Minor and us today to realize that God chose us even though we didn't deserve it. That before creation, he set us aside to be in Christ. And because of that, our salvation isn't rooted in us, but in God's unchanging will. And since it's God's choosing and our faith is only a response to it, then nothing can take it away. It is certain. It is secure. John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Paul, he wanted them to know that regardless what they faced in life, that even when they fell short and started to wonder how God could love them, that whenever they, they missed the mark, that they could remember that they weren't ever chosen by God based on what they had done. It wasn't based on them. It was based on, his, on him. So they didn't need to worry about earning it. They didn't have to worry about achieving it because God had given them it. And that truth hasn't changed. And said, it, it, it is true for us today. And in other words, despite what anxiety and doubt may come your way, regardless of the difficulties you may face in life and the pain you might experience, if you're in Christ, you can rest secure in his love simply because God chose you. And there's something about being chosen, isn't there? Whether that's being chosen for a team or chosen for a promotion or simply chosen to be someone's friend. There's a comfort, a sense of worth that's attached to it when someone chooses us. Back when I was a kid, I, I wasn't that great at sports. Truthfully, I'm not that great still. But most of the time, I was that kid in school that was chosen last. But occasionally, probably out of some act of mercy, someone would choose me before last. There's something about someone wanting you on their team rather than getting saddled with you. Here, Paul is saying God wasn't saddled with you. He wasn't sighing when you believed, like someone having to take the weak kid. And said, while you didn't deserve to be chosen, God chose you. It was the same thing that had happened with the people of Israel. Moses, he tells them as much in Deuteronomy, saying that the Lord your God has chosen you out of the, all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other people, for you were the fewest. Then several verses later. And it's not because of your righteousness or integrity that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. And Moses, he wanted the children of Israel to remember that God chose them, that God loved them because of what was in God's heart, not because of what was in theirs. And because of that, they could have confidence that God would continue to love them even when they failed to do everything that he required. And their world was crashing around them. They could still know that God loved them. They could rest in that. 
Paul, he got to the same point in the book of Philippians when he writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In fact, here in Ephesus, in Ephesians, just to drive home the point, Paul goes on to say that you are chosen for adoption by God into God's family. To us today, adoption, it carries with it different meanings. But for those in Paul's day, they knew what it was. It was a permanent relationship. Ironically, when a child was born biologically, the parents could disown them. They could take the name away. They could take their inheritance away for a variety of reasons. But not if the child was adopted. An adopted child received a permanent new identity. All their prior commitments, their responsibilities and debts were erased. Well, like that, God didn't choose to be your foster parent. You don't, get, you don't get kicked out of the family because of your poor behavior. We don't have to worry day to day about whether or not we're good enough to be a part of the family or whether the day may come that God decides no longer to foster. Instead, God made us a permanent part of his family. And nothing can undo the legal procedure that binds us to Christ. I can hear somebody say, well, Chad, that's all well and good, but how can I know? I mean, I want the kind of assurance you're talking about, but how can I know I'm in Christ? How can I know that I was chosen? Truthfully, the fact that you're concerned about it probably means you don't need to worry about it. After all, without God doing a work in us and choosing us, you wouldn't care or even want to be saved. Over in Romans chapter 3, we learn that left to our own, no one seeks God. But if your desire is not enough, notice here that Paul says we were elected with a purpose, that we were elected to be blameless and holy. Now, no doubt part of that is since we are in Christ, we've been given his holiness, and so we are blameless before God. But part of that also means that since we were chosen to be blameless and holy, and holy that that is a sign that we're in Christ, that we continually grow in holiness is a sign that we are found in him. In other words, if your life today is characterized by a pattern of choosing sin, if your most cherished thoughts are hatred, if you're determined not to forgive, you're failing to fulfill one of the reasons believers were chosen and may not be a true believer. If you're committed to materialism and find your greatest joy in stuff, if all your waking thoughts are about your next purchase, or if you're focused on hedonism, if your mind is a 24-hour brothel and you think that's okay, you very well may not be a Christian, regardless of how many times you've gone forward and mouthed the words. Now, make no mistake, election being chosen ultimately results in holiness, but that process of becoming holy, that process of sanctification, it begins now. So if you're not concerned about holiness, that's a problem. But if you're growing slowly but steadily, if each time you take communion, you're more like Jesus than the last time, if you're confessing your sins and seeking to live more like Jesus, then not only does that show you that God chose you, but the fact that he chose you should give you comfort and encourage you when you're facing tough times. Well, no, secondly, those in Christ should be encouraged not only by what God the Father has done in the past, but by what God the Son is doing in the present. That we should worship God the Son for what he's doing in the present. A while ago, someone from my last church showed up to, just to spend some time with me in my office. And as, after they sat down, they, they got a book out and they handed me the book. Apparently, their wife had been in a thrift store near my old church and was looking through the books when she discovered one with a stamp in it, a stamp that read, The Library of Chad Houghton. Seems that someone had borrowed a book from me, but rather than return it, they had donated it to the thrift store. And so she had bought it. She had redeemed it and was returning, and he was returning it. Well, here Paul goes on to say that we should be encouraged because Jesus has redeemed us. He saved us from the prison of shame and sin we were in. 
In Colossians, Paul put it this way, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. And Jesus, He did what we couldn't do. He saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. When left to our own, when even our best efforts couldn't redeem us, He bought us with His blood. While that is true, though, unfortunately, if I'm honest, many believers I interact today don't really understand it. No, it's, it's not that they don't realize that Jesus gave his life for them. It's more that they somehow have come to believe that they only needed a little help from Jesus to be saved. You see, it's just that in their mind that they aren't terrible people. They haven't killed anybody. They haven't cheated anybody. And so while Jesus had to pay a ransom for that person in prison, they figured he merely had to give some spare change for us. Somehow we've downplayed the truth to the point that we miss the fact that regardless of whether you were a serial killer or someone who occasionally disobeyed your parents, the Bible says that you were dead in your trespasses. Ephesians 2 reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, that, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You see, whether our sin was great or little in our eyes, we were dead, deserving eternity in hell, and yet we were redeemed from that, redeemed from sin and death. Over in the Gospel of Luke, there's a story of an unknown woman who, out of adoration for Jesus, anoints him with expensive perfume and oil. When the, when the Pharisees at the time see it, they grumbled at it. But Jesus said that she was lavishing her adoration on him because she realized how much she had been forgiven. Dear friends, it's only when we start to see how evil we were that we start to appreciate and see how great Jesus' sacrifice was for us. And then, then that we start to worship God the way he deserves. After all, it isn't until we see our sin for what it is that we start, until we see that, we don't start to really grasp what it means to be forgiven. That we don't, until we grasp that, really understand the amazement the psalmist had when he said, as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our sins from us. And it's not until we do that that we can share the wonder that Isaiah must have felt when he told him to write that God had swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. In fact, here, he, Paul, he says that Jesus forgave you. He redeemed you in all wisdom and insight. Now, there's a little bit of debate on whether that is something that Jesus gives to us or a definition uh, used to describe his forgiveness. But regardless which it is, there's no doubt that Jesus forgave you. He redeemed you in all wisdom and insight. Despite the fact that he was fully aware of your sin, he knew every time you would lie, every evil thought you would dwell on, every ounce of bitterness you would contain, every word of gossip you would ever speak, and every time you would hurt someone. He knows more about your nature and the horror of your trespasses than you do, and yet Jesus, he chose to redeem and forgive you anyways. That is the mystery of his will that Paul refers to here, that God was going to redeem his people through Jesus. As Paul puts it in verse 10, unite all things in him. And that has God encouraged us as well. Simply it means that since eternity passed, God has been driving history towards his plan. And that plan, if you're in Christ, has included you. And rarely do we take time to step back and see the whole picture. Just that we live life in the moment and we often miss this great unfolding of God's plan, what he's doing. You can think of it this way. Over the last several weeks, there's been a lot of storms in the area, and with those storms, there's been a lot of rainbows. I know my kids keep pointing them out to me. 
Sometimes when you see a rainbow, it looks like it touches the horizon, but you would never be able to find the start of it. You see, it's just that even when they touch the horizon, you're really only seeing part of the rainbow. After all, rainbow is actually round. If you don't believe me, look it up. I've only seen one full one once in Africa. Still, I'm told that if you're flying and the earth is no longer blocking your view, you can see the entire circle. Well, most of the times, our lives is like that. We don't see the whole picture, the whole plan. And so Paul here, he moves earth, puts it aside for us so we can see God's entire plan. So we can see his design for human history, that from the beginning God chose to love us, that from the beginning he made the world good and for his glory, and that even though his glory was crumpled by our sin, his plan is to show his mercy and expand his glory through Jesus, first through his people and then through those that he has made in Christ, using us to build his kingdom, and one day we'll bring it all to an end. That even the end of the story is written. Since you're part of the plan, your end of your story is written. In fact, if you want to know the end of your story, if you're in Christ today, just read the last chapter or two of Revelations. Well, since that is God's plan, nothing, not the trials of today, not the difficulties you're facing can undermine it. And we forget that at times, don't we? We lose sight of God's plan when a child that we have gets ill or the church is struggling or we're battling to hold our family together or just pay our bills. We forget that there's a purpose in this and so Paul reminds us of it. One author put it this way, what a difference it makes in my life and yours when we believe that the trials as well as the accomplishments, the difficulties as well as the joys are not simply the products of brute forces in the universe but actually are part of God's eternal plan for his glory and good. Notice lastly, briefly, those that are in Christ, they should be also encouraged because the Spirit, God's Spirit, guarantees guarantees the future. Look at verse 13. In Him, also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit, he guarantees our inheritance. He's the deposit of it. The the certainty we will receive it. But Paul, he wasn't just speaking of a future in heaven. No, the Spirit's presence, it's a deposit now. It, It means that we're already receiving, in some regards, our inheritance today. The blessing of being adopted is already yours. Think of it like a, a family cottage that your parents have graciously already added you to the title and they've put your name on it. You get to use the cottage while your parents are still alive, but one day it will fully be yours. That is the kind of guarantee the Spirit is, as you already enjoy the blessings of sonship now. In fact, Paul goes on to say that we were sealed by him. A seal is a mark of ownership, of authenticity. It was used for cattle and even branded slaves at times. Now, those, those seals are external. Ours is internal as the Spirit comes and dwells in us. Paul, he, he doesn't promise that you're never going to have to walk through deep trials, that disease will never come, that finances will never be hard, or jobs and relationships will never be difficult. He doesn't promise that you will always know the next steps in life, but instead he promises that in Christ you are already home. His Spirit guarantees it and seals us. That means that if you're in Him, you don't have to worry about whether God will accept you on the day that you stand before Him, because He already has. He has adopted you and joined you to Christ. And that should empower you to be courageous when opposition comes. It should inspire you to say with the psalmist, the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. Why? What can man do to me? I will not be afraid. 
It should enable us to be less worried about a troubling bill and, and more willing to consider how God is calling us to be faithful, less concerned about angry people in our world, and more willing to trust ourselves to God's care, less concerned about how the world sees us, what they say of us, because we know how God sees us. As one person put it, because we have eternal security that the deprivation of this world cannot deny, we're able to stand for truth when peers demand compromise or stand up to a child who claims that our discipline will erase his love for us. The reality of our heavenly status in Christ makes earthly challenges less intimidating, even if they are not less real. Friends, don't miss it. When life is tough and the list of troubles long, Paul wants us to remember that God the Father has chosen us, God the Son has redeemed us, and God the Spirit has assured us. Here God, he shouts his encouragement to his children who are wrestling against evils in the town of Ephesus and, and to every believer down through history, even to us. The words he uses are strong. I chose you, I predestined you, you are mine no matter what. I have redeemed you, I bought you, I've forgiven you, I've given you my Spirit and sealed you. Now, I don't know where you're at today. But I know, do know that there are times that we need that kind of reminder. Times when we need to be reminded of all that God has done, to be assured of his faithfulness and calmed by his promises. Times that those that are, that are in Christ need to be encouraged. Well, if that is you today, be encouraged that God loves you, has blessed you, and promises to keep you. That God is working all things out for his good and has made you a part of his plan. And then respond to that in worship, by blessing him, praising him, and thanking him for all he's done. Perhaps you're hearing that isn't you. Quite frankly, you're not sure you are even in Christ today. Yeah, you prayed a prayer once, maybe at church when you were younger, but there's no sense of his spirit within you, no growth towards holiness that you can see, and you have no confidence of the future. Truthfully, this passage, rather than encourage you, it's caused you to be anxious. If that is you, whatever you do, please don't leave today without entering into a relationship with Jesus and receiving the blessing that Paul reminds us of here that are only for those that are in Christ, only for those that are found in him. My prayer for you is that you be found in Christ today and, and enjoy all the blessings and encouragement that Paul mentions here. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in you we can know that we are chosen. We thank you that in Christ we know that we can be found redemption, that because of your Spirit we can have the certainty and guarantee that we are saved, that we have a future, that we can know that we're sealed and we can rest safe in you. Father, help us to be people that live that out, especially when life is hard, especially when challenges and troubles come our way. In Jesus' name, amen.